Hey, I'm Jonathan Miller, and this is the Housing Helix Podcast. I'm a real estate appraiser, analyst, and blogger based in New York who is interested in pretty much anything related to housing with an analytical bent. The Housing Helix is the real estate conversation in long form with information analysis and commentary, as well as insights from housing-related experts that have something interesting to share. This episode and the entire podcast library are available as a free subscription through iTunes and at thehousinghelix.com. I hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm here with Barry Ritholtz, who is the CEO and Director of Equity Research at Fusion IQ, an online quantitative research firm, which I was able to say without getting tongue-tied. He has a column in the Washington Post, which is a must-read. He is the author of Bailout Nation, a great book, mandatory reading for anybody that wants to know about what, uh, uh, what we just went through. Um, and he's the blogger in chief of the big picture, also a highly addictive uh, <laughs> resource uh, re- uh, resource for people that want to know what's going on in the economy and a lot of other things. I like that addictive, addictive right? And he is in the um, conference business these days, uh, which we'll talk about in depth towards the end of the podcast. Uh, he has something coming up in October called the Big Picture Conference 2012. That's our annual conference. We're in, we're not in the conference business. We just it's just a few friends and, and people we like come and speak to. But you got some pretty high-profile guests. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a great it's all list. Good, it's all yeah. good stuff. And uh, It's a big – by the way, just so you know, it's a giant you, – you've done conferences. Yeah, yeah. It's a giant pain in the ass to do. Oh. So I would never want to be in the conference business. It's a totally one, different – One a year is, is plenty. Pl- plenty. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And uh, one of the things that uh, Barry notes on his Twitter bio is that he's the director of cognitive dissonance. Which Absolutely. I, and My uh, pride, proudest title. And, and tell me why. Well, cognitive dissonance is um, something that takes place when humans are confronted with facts that disagree right. with their preconceived Beliefs, myths, ideologies, notions. I always think of it as like you, you, you bought something you've been waiting for. You bring it home and you're bummed out about it. That's, that's actually a different factor. We, we can explain, and, and the presentation I give at the conference uh-huh. goes into that. It, it turns out that uh, – so there's behavioral economics and neurofinance. It turns out that within the world of neurofinance – when they've done studies with traders, literally putting these guys into MRIs right, right. and putting them in situations, the anticipation of reward turns out to be far more pleasurable, generates far more serotonin and dopamine and parts of the brain light up than the actual reward itself. Right. Wanting, as Spock once said, as he's learned from humans, is often better than having. Right. Um, I like to say, as far as traders are concerned, uh, the the famous Rothschild quote was um, buy trumpets and sell cannons, but it all comes back meaning buying the anticipation of war. War once right. war starts, then you could sell. But as it turns out, the the old Wall Street expression used to be buy the rumor, sell the news. Yes. Hey, by the time the news comes out, it's already reflected in stock price. But I'm coming around to the view that by the time uh, the stock the news comes out. The anticipation is over, and that's where all the fun happens. Watch Apple in anticipation of the iPhone, right. the iPhone 5 announcement. Watch what happens in anticipation of how fast it sell out, sells out. 
Friday the 21st, I think, is the day it's released. Yes. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to Although see... Although I bought mine online last this past Friday. Right. And I'm just, every day, I'm waiting for... That to arrive at my doorstep, and it's, it's it'll it'll be here. Uh, listen, I'm an Apple guy as right. well. I have been for many years. I didn't feel compelled to order it. I'll, I'll kind of let the first rush. Well, well I, I have a four, and I skipped the four S, and I've got a five. I have a four also, and uh, and all I have four kids. They all have iPhones, and my wife has. We're, we're so a, you're going to be the only five. I'll be the only five because I believe in the trickle down theory of economics. They'll uh, get. They'll get. That's, right. tr- that's actually the trickle down theory of technology. My right. wife. My wife has the old iPad. I have right. a new pad. Her MacBook Pro is three years old. I have the new one. Right. She she could not care less. Right. She would be very happy. To me, it's working, very it's, it's way too a important. Commodore sixty four. <laughs> I hear you. So so we've had a lot of stuff going on uh, economically speaking, and one of the things that has come up recently or very recently has been the introduction of QE three to uh, the dialect that's actually you know Bernanke announced it. Um, and and I was just wondering what you see as as this being some of any benefit to the economy. Is there a problem with this? It seems that you have people on both sides of the fence, very extreme, one way or the other. So there's a couple of really interesting things about this. One, since we were talking about psychology, we can delve into that area a little bit. But we can also talk about how it impacts the economy, how it impacts the markets, and how it impacts. Housing, But the thing that I found most fascinating about the QE3 announcement, you go back over the history of, of the recent history, the past decade of the Fed, they've made it pretty clear what they're going to do. And throughout their history, they've always had their mouthpiece at the Wall Street Journal who had a direct line. And when the Fed wants to get information to the Wall Street community, that's how they do this. Right. This is not a great secret. This is not a conspiracy. This is well known. Sure. There isn't anybody of uh, any intellect or, or experience that would say this isn't true. Used to be Greg Ipp when he was at yeah. the Wall Street Journal. Then he went to The Economist. Right. Um, and now it's John um, Hilsengrath, um, nice enough guy who, who's at Wall Street Journal for years, good reporter. Uh, so we know that John is their mouthpiece, and when he says the Fed is likely to do this, he's not, you know, staying up late at night making this crap up. They're telling him. He's saying, Bernanke says, by the way, here's what we're going to do. So I was astonished heading into the QE3 announcement how many people just simply weren't believing it. The market was was generally – There was a lot of discussion. A lot of doubt, a lot of – so number one – you look at the historical pattern, you look at the data, you look at – we know who John is and what he does, and we know his relationship with the Fed. First, I'm astonished that so many people were uh, really doubtful. And then second, and this is the more interesting psychology part, I'm amazed at how many people who are in my profession, meaning managing assets for clients and institutions on a professional basis, um, who instead of – looking out at the situation and saying, I have to adapt my portfolio to this, all they did was, the, you mentioned the extremes. Right. We, heard, we, we hear these criticisms from people, and this is awful, this is the end of the world, it's the worst, blah, blah. And all I can think of, and I've had this conversation with people, I wrote a piece that kind of went a little viral over the summer called Where Sea Monsters Live, right. that, that basically explains... 
you're not a policy wonk. You're not working at some think tank in Washington, D.C., funded by some elderly, doddering billionaire. You're running money for people. And so you can rail against the Fed uh, on weekends. You could talk about what this means for the price of X and inflation and this and that. But that's not your job. Your right. job is to to work within the parameters that it that's brings to the market, right? So uh, the so the the conceit of where sea monsters live is that if you're the captain of a boat, you have to know about the tides. You don't have to know how to. Well, yesterday was talk like a pirate day. Just, that's, to, just, that's, just I don't. To bring by the way, up. I don't participate in that because I find it. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not a joiner, really. I, I don't want to do anything that will compromise my objective. Uh, 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 my ability to lean against the crowd. Right. But any pirate knows you have to pay attention to storms. You have to know where the you have to know where the the revenuers are. You have to know where the her queen her majesty's royal navy is. You have to know right. the tides, the wind, the weather, where the rocks are beneath the surface. You have to know all these things. Your job is to get from here to there, uh, get give safe passage to your crew and passengers. You have to know where the sea monsters live. And if you're just going to complain about the weather, well, then you're going to be a terrible right. sea, uh, boat captain. You're going to be a terrible sea captain because it is what it is. Stop tilting against windows. And, and what is it? In, in, in other words, you know, I had uh, I had an issue with, uh, you know, some of the, the impetus behind it was um, to make... Uh, home buying more affordable, and you know my per, uh, perspective is is from the housing side. Right, and I and I and I recall you saying yeah. if only rates were lower, more people would buy houses. <laughs> I, I think that was no, my no. twin brother. Or right, there's nobody saying that. Nobody's but. saying that, but and and I know that they don't have a lot of tools in their um, in their bag left. That's right. And Bernanke has said, hey, listen, if you want to lower uh, unemployment. Congress has to do that. Right. We, there's only so much we can do with the monetary spigot. I, I, look, if we want to be critical of what the Fed does, they're punishing savers. They're rewarding speculators. Right. They're also not allowing the normal process of bad banks going belly up and right. bankrupt, my alliterative sentence. And they're, this is propping up bad banks because you're making people who would otherwise default on their mortgage. They're giving them an opportunity to not – by right. keeping rates so low. If rates were – the Fed was normal, if this was 2.5%, 3.5%, default rates would go up. Mortgage rates wouldn't be at 3, six. It's right. insane for 30-year right. fixed. Right. It'd be at four and a half, five, and there are a lot of people that wouldn't be able to make payments, which would hurt the banks that we've already sunk all this money. And I think the, the orientation, uh, sort of the bias towards banks over you know the proverbial Main Street, Wall Street comparison mm-hmm. – um, was came up in the uh, the Fannie Mae uh, Bank of America, uh, where basically B of A was supposedly not servicing uh, uh, to a high degree of uh, competency, I guess, and Fannie Mae was going to take it away and put it into a, a more high touch servicer. Right, and Fannie Mae got Stand paid. Down. A, yeah, and they got a premium essentially uh, uh, for uh, walking away or, or for giving up the right. servicing. Um, Makes no sense at all. Okay, you're yeah, doing that's... a crappy job. Here's a bonus. It's, yeah, but now here's the this is the situation. You have to some degree a big part of what the Fed is doing is to help prop up banks right. who are normally stabilize the financial look, system. If you're so incompetent as a bank that you can't stay in business. 
It's not, all right, here's a bailout and you're fine. You're now spending the next five or ten years with the same management in place. Right. Hey, guess what happens? You, you don't just take a drunk driver and say, hey, you went off the road. Here, let us put you back on the road. You know, here's so a long. pack. Right. Have, have, a, have a safe drive. Um, a guy gets taken out of the car. But instead, the, the study was 92% of senior management, C-level C execs, boards of directors. They're all still in place at the banks that, right. that got bailed out. Um, uh, shareholders were, for the most part, not catastrophically punished. Bondholders got 100 cents on the dollar. That's the intellectual debate. What QE, the actual asset management, what am I doing with my money um, side of things are the Fed is basically saying we're going to pour a lot of liquidity in the system. We've done it with bonds. Now we're doing it with mortgage backs because we get a bigger bang for the buck. Mm -hmm. So they'll drive mortgage rates even lower, although at a certain point. And they telegraphed uh, this strategy at least through 2015. Right. And that keeps being pushed right. farther. The 13, 14, 15. Right. I don't know if they'll be able to keep rates. I, I personally scratch my head and say, really, 2015? But what they're saying is, what they're saying is two things. First, hey, if you want to go build a factory or do something, rates are going to be low for a long time, which is probably helpful to investment and building and capital sure. investment. But they also have removed the impetus to buy a house. Rates are low, and they're going to stay low for as far as you Exactly. Can. The, if it's, it hey, the, you know, it removed the sense of urgency. Right. They're completely gone. And right. if they were to say, we're going to keep rates low for three or four quarters, but that's right. it, you would see a surge of activity. Things would start to normalize. The data point that I find fascinating, which actually came from Mark Hansen, yes. is you look at how far – so you asked what is the result of QE. You look at how far the Fed has driven um, mortgage rates down. Hansen says it's about a third. But even if you're not that – even if you go from 4.75 to 3.625, not quite a third – it's still a huge increase in buying power for the same monthly payment. Absolutely. He taxed it at 15% or so. Right. Now, stop and think about it. Uh, Three-quarters, two-thirds of buyers, depending on what part of the country you're looking at, are buyers using mortgages. Right. They have 20% or 15% more buying power, and yet home prices are up three, four, right. the five. Math, it, the math doesn't work. What, <laughs> what that tells me is what the Fed is doing is slowing the rate. Of decline. That this is essentially, right. it's almost like inflation adjusted. Adjusted for buying power, home prices are actually down. Right. Fed is the only thing that's that's holding that up. Right. Um, what normally drives home prices are interest rates, employment, and wage gains. Well, right. employment is punk. Stuck. And wage gains have been you know flat for a decade. Rates are at all-time lows. Right. Um, I refinanced, I don't know, three years ago, and we just got an offer – I think it was three six no points, right. almost no you know de minimis closing fees. It's going to knock you know right. for a conforming mortgage. It's going to knock like six hundred bucks a month off our payments, right. which so translates into stimulative, right? And that and that's all that does to me is it, it translates into well, you have two things going on. You have you have falling rates, but you also have still a lot of people either underwater or low equity. We, you and I right. have talked about this right. before. Right. So we have this sort of strange dynamic where we've got affordability better than, you know, in years uh, to, to many consumers. You have a shortage of listings, not right. because 
People are frozen. They're stuck. Because they, they, can't they can't trade sell. up. They can't trade up. They're right. They, they have no equity. They don't have the 20% They don't or even have to be negative. They just might not have the 20% for the trade right. up for the bigger house or That's whatever. Right. And so in this weird way, you've got this, this sort of artificial uh, constraint on supply, which is maybe goosing – have the result of goosing prices up a little bit, which then maybe brings more into qualifying for mortgages – but it doesn't seem like it's based on anything sort of firm or economic, economic fundamental that you can say, hey, then it'll just go off on its own for the next, you know, until uh, we get it, stupid such again. A, there's such a tiny swath of people who are really requalifying for a refinance. Right. So we've done a lot of work and we bought a Mortgage half. volumes went down Way over down. the year. And Crazy. yet rates fell through. Right. Great. It just tells you anybody who, look, if you refinance in the past year, you're not refinancing now. If you can afford to refinance, it probably means you don't need the money. And if you get that, if I save 500 bucks a month, it, it's not affecting my spending. Right. I spend at a pretty much a fixed rate. Right. And hopefully I'm making more than that rate each month. And because my wife is the fiscally conservative one, <laughs> right. um, that's never a problem. sounds vaguely she, familiar in She my never life. lets me spend more than I earn. If it was up to me, I would be spending at next year's salaries rate. She's always two years behind. Right. That's a good way to look at it. Uh, so so we, we have this sort of <laughs> – do we have this un, this – I don't know where we seem to be. There's not a lot of clarity. I, you know, people are sort of you know looking forward. Where are we going from here? And we have a couple things sort of facing us towards the end of this. Well, really, the beginning of 2013, which is the fiscal cliff. Although I did hear that rephrase to be the fiscal slope because the it's sequestration, the, right? And so we have the expiration of the Bush, Bush tax cuts, which I know in housing. Um, we're seeing the wealthy, you know, in our business. Big action. Uh, yeah, because they're worried about the capital gains going up, whether It'll or not. go up somewhat. Right. Yeah. And then, and then uh, we're also worried about, or not worried, but there's a concern about uh, the, you know, starting to pay for the, uh, the stimulus, right. 2013. And then behind the backdrop of all that is we have this sort of swirl with Europe. You know, one, one week it sounds like maybe there's something good. You know, there's a solution. Do you believe anything you hear out of Europe? I mean, nothing. Uh, can I tell you? And I, know, I mean no disrespect to my European friends and colleagues. Yeah. So when I hear Mario Monti um, talk about this next great thing, I don't believe a word. What is this? Twenty or twenty-one? This time we're we've no no this time no now we've re- right I, it's all bullshit now they have nobody, to nobody vote that you know their respective governments have to vote. It's got to be unanimous. It's got to be eighteen unanimous votes. It's, right. It's, but forget all that. There's too much debt, too much bad sovereign debt on right. the books of all these banks. I don't know how you rescue all of them. Right. That's a multi-trillion Germany, dollar. Germany can't do it all. Right. And I don't think all of Europe can. Right. I keep talking about triage. Yes. Triage. You show up in the battlefield. A bunch of people are wounded. You have to make an instant decision. Right. The blood's coming out of. I can't save you. We don't have enough plasma to right. save you. Sorry. You're going to die. Ah, that's a flesh wound. All right. I can say. Because if you go to the first guy, you don't save him. Everybody else dies also. Nobody survives. You have to make that decision given the – again, goes back to situational awareness. Given the constraints of the moment and the situation as I find it and our limited resources, we only have this much plasma, this much right. gauze, uh, this much ga- uh, so, so, gauze. So, 
Who can we save? I don't think they can save anyone. Right. So, so the way I've sort of – the way I've come to look at the Europe, Europe problem is that it's just this constant it's, – it's almost become a constant where you can sort of count on it to be screwed up or a mess. Background noise. Right. It's background noise. And, and like you were saying earlier about uh, you know, not railing or complaining, you have to work within it's, – it's almost like you – it's unrealistic to expect significant improvement – if anything, I think maybe we have a lot more weakness going forward. And so we're looking here in, in the U.S. and say, what does that mean to our economy? And I'm not so sure. I know that with housing, it's actually in a sort of weird way it's been beneficial. Sure. Because a lot of foreign purchasers. A lot of foreign purchasers. I, I Sort of the, the phrase I've come up with to describe it is that uh, – that, um, Sort of high end or luxury real estate has become the new global currency because to some degree, sure. because you have people coming in now. Of course, they're not putting you all their. That, you saw that Argentina story was it in Bloomberg? That yes, people desperate to get money out of Argentina buying yes. real estate in New York and Miami. And right, it's it's and look at Vancouver as a perfect example uh, yes. on, in North America. There are all these beautiful new Booming. towers, beautiful towers. They're see through. It's not because they're unsold. Half the sales are to Chinese nationals, and it's their emergency escape pod if stuff really gets crazy in China. Right, right. And you see that you see the same thing from around the world. It's it's quite amazing. Yeah. So I'm I'm sitting here, you know, trying to assess like where where does housing go from here? I know I know markets like New York and Miami benefit tremendously from this foreign, or at least the, on the high end. On the high end, uh, yeah, clearly. Which is not the problem. The problem are the starter homes. The second or third trade-up homes, that's where the works are really gummed up. And that's where the, the I think the data that we're getting about prices is somewhat misleading. Right. Well, for example, uh, the existing home sales, when you looked at what just came out, it was a big number, jumped in um, transactions. But I think if you look at different markets, the markets that seem to be showing the biggest jump are the formerly – well, they're not formally, but they're known as sort of the distressed markets like your Phoenix and your Las Vegas. That's right. And, and, and I, you know, the orientation is that sales were coming from such a low point that, hey, Phoenix is up 18 percent or whatever, 19 percent. But it's not up 18 percent. It's up from this crazy low let me, number. Let, let's talk a little bit about math because this is something that – so many people get wrong, and I've given up trying to convince Wall Street Journal reporters and others behind, uh, the math of this. However, you and your audience will appreciate this. So when we get data like existing home sales, it's an average of all the sales in a given area sure. or nationally. They're thrown in the bucket. And you take, a, you take this dispersion of inexpensive houses, medium houses, expensive houses – and high and luxury houses, and you try and average. And, and so the question that we're asking is, are home prices going up, going down, staying the same? What, what's happening with home prices? And the numbers make it look like home prices are going up. But there's a wrinkle, there's an asterisk, uh, a footnote, and if you pay attention to the footnote, it really puts the kibosh on that view. And, and I like using automobiles as an example. So uh, in the most recent existing home sales, the NAR reports that distressed homes could be foreclosures, right. could be short sales, could be any other type of for distressed home sale, typically sell between 20 and 30 percent below the identical house across the street. Right. And so 
distressed homes are 22% of the units. Now you go back 18 months or 12 months, they were 36, 38% right. of total sales. Now, if we were at the end of the foreclosure boom, if we were at the end of the distressed housing market, I would say, hey, we're working off the last of those banned inventories. This is a good thing. But the asterisk is we had this horrific robo-signing right. scandal. Yeah. It was a long-negotiated settlement. Over the course of the settlement, which was reached you know, bare, less than a year Earlier, ago. You're right. right. It was early this year. It was a hand slap. <laughs> uh, that's right. Um, but during the, the, I think it was 14 or, or 13 months during the course of the negotiations, the major banks, the major servicers all voluntarily agreed to stop foreclosing on properties. We will voluntarily agree to a temporary right. foreclosure abatement while we're, we're negotiating this. And so for over a year, you had the foreclosure machinery just grind to a halt. Now, as we saw recently in both uh, Realty Track and Trulia, um, foreclosures are now starting to tick up. It was exactly. only 1%, but it's starting to move up. And when I ex- explain this to people about housing, they don't get it. Right. But I found the metaphor about cars work. So when I say to you, are car prices going up or down? Imagine that we, we decided to take a basket of cars and we took the highest-end luxury sports cars and put the Ferrari in it and then we take the luxury sedans and we put that in there and then we take, take the SUVs. So we take one of each. Here's a sports car. Here's a luxury car. Here's a big truck. Here's an SUV. Here's a midsize uh, passenger car. Right. Here's a compact car. Here's a subcompact car. And we'll take the price of each, average it, and look at it from each month and see if all the uh, – so when you're asking the question, you're really not saying are luxury price cars going up or down or, or midsize right. cars going up or down. Is the average car going up? Now imagine the government for whatever statistical reason says we're not going to report the subcompact car data. Just instead of taking it and dividing it by 20 cars, instead of adding up all the car prices and dividing by 20 and seeing if it changes from month to month, just leave the subcompact data and add it up and see how that looks. Well, guess what happens? You dropped off the lowest price car. Right. Suddenly, it looks like your, your car right. prices Shipped are going mix. up. Right. Everything is – well, that's what's taking place right. with when you go from 38 to 22% distressed homes, you're losing one out of seven homes – that typically sells at a twenty to thirty at a lower price, discount. and and not only that, but the the lower priced. I, I from covering the Miami market, I parsed out the distressed and non-distressed uh, sales, and the non-distressed sales on average are uh, roughly thirty to thirty-five percent larger in square footage. In other words, you know when you when you watch a show like Cops and you see. You right. see people being arrested. Those are the distressed and, houses that, that are, right. That it's you know it's it's far cry from what you're, you're reading about. You know, wealthy investors from Brazil coming in and buying. So, right. so what, really, what you're attributing to is this big shift in the mix. And and on top of that, we know what happens to a neighborhood when there's a few foreclosures. Sure. The average price in a neighborhood where there are can foreclosures, be impacted. not can be. Right. They're definitely impacted. The question right. is: Is it down seven percent? Is it down twelve percent? Whatever the numbers yeah. are. So you're, leave, you're taking that out of the mix. Not only is there are much less distressed houses in the mix, but the negative ramifications of those dress, distressed housing aren't there. That was a temporary government-induced right. halt, which is now reversing. 
the the data Although point. I, I, I have to tell you, um, too, when I when I think about the the post robo signing world uh, during that period. Uh, I think there might be a behavioral change on the servicers, and maybe I'm reading too much into it. But I think what happened during that period, short sales continued to rise. They did not abate like right. foreclosures. And I think lenders, because the discount off of a short sale on average is three to five percent, right? It's a, it's a because they don't approve the short sale unless it's close to market. So I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot more foreclosures come in, mm-hmm. um, but short sales will. Uh, you know, continue to be a, a dominant player. I think banks learned during this sort of hiatus that it's cheaper to do a short sale. Than a foreclosure, right. Than a foreclosure. If they were smart, they would do much more. But the I think thing- we will see a lot more foreclosures. I and mean, we're seeing the increase. We definitely will see more. But I don't know if it's going to be this tsunami that we were envisioning, say, of mid, short mid, sales of, or of, of uh, foreclosures. So here's the data point that blows my mind. And this comes from... Is it Ivy Zellman? Uh, no, it's Lori Goodman of Amherst Securities. Yes. She says that there are 2.9 million homes in the United States where the homeowner has not made a mortgage payment in 12 months or more. Right. That's an astonishing... It's, it's unbelievable. And that tells me the odds are that 3 million or so, assuming there's no recession, assuming nothing untoward happens, that... That's uh, $3 million well, more that, foreclosures and short sales. Put that say? next to sort of the $5 million plus or minus annualized uh, existing home sale number. I mean, the it, data we, the, it's the, massive the, still. The number we put out in, uh, it was either 06 or 07, is we're looking for 8 to $10 million foreclosures. And at the time, oh, are you crazy? Those right. numbers. Well, no. You just look at how many people, look at the subprime stuff, look at the worst of the all day. You look at how many people bought houses that they really couldn't afford – Look, we're normally doing four and a half million home sales a say if you, uh, a year. When you're doing five million home sales, five and a half million home sales a year, uh, that means for a long time a million plus people are buying homes that they really couldn't afford. Right. Then you add the worst recession in history on top, and since the Great Depression on top of it, right. and enough people, you know, 18, 20 million people lose their jobs, half of those are mortgage payers. And if they don't have mortgage insurance, right. it's deep trouble. Right, right. And and so that's what you know. My view is that you know this is years in the making. That we have a long unwinding period ahead of us, and what I call the happy not not that I'm a perma bear about housing, but this happy housing news that we've sort of been hearing over the last six months is sort of almost humorous if it wasn't so serious. Well, you uh, saw what we did on the blog. We went back for the past six years and picked all the bottom calls yes, that- in the media. <laughs> and I put one of my, my research interns on it. And it, it's hilarious. It's the same group of people. Listen, I trash... Well, you, you, you the Barron's cover story... Uh, the third calling, time. Same pro- guy, third time, third right, call. calling the bottom. But what, what really cracked me up, and he's such a nice guy. I hate to say anything bad about him. But anytime an, a housing article says, quote, astute real estate observers like Mark Zandi is like, what? <laughs> Listen, he's a lovely guy. Very nice I'm guy. I'm sure he's a tremendous economist. I'm hard-pressed to name anybody who was more wrong about real estate than he been. He's been awful. So if you're going to quote him, that's, that's, it's, I'm, I'm, I can't even draw an analogy. Right. You know, think of the most evil guy you could come up with. And you're giving him the humanitarian. Maybe David Larray would be. That would be unfair, though. That no, would... I, it's like it's like saying um, 
Humanitarian of the Year Award to Joseph Stalin. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the equivalent. Astute housing observer. No, this guy's a stumble bum right. drunk when it comes to housing. And look, I understand why. I know what side of the street he works on. Right. He's a perennial optimist. He doesn't get paid to say, hey, man, bad shit coming down the pike. Right. I get paid to say that. He doesn't get paid right. to say that. My clients don't want to hear happy talk. Because they have the ability to get out of the way. Right. If you're working for shops like BlackRock or Merrill or, or Morgan, uh, look, BlackRock can't say we're going to step out of equities because they look dangerous. They're a trillion dollars. They'll right. cause a crash. The same way, a guy like Zandi is working for people who either can't or don't want to hear. I, I think it was you who came up with the expression bathtub shape recovery. Was that you? Yes. Well, so, I, I don't know if I came up. I remember saying so, it. Yeah. So the concept of you think of the yeah. old white cast yeah. iron tubs from where the water comes in. There's a gradual. Yes. Uh, there's a straight drop. And then you have this long bottom. And right. then this gradual rise up the back end. And we're, I don't know, a foot or two past yeah. the, the drain. So we've already had the collapse. Right. We're still bouncing along the bottom, and we still have a ways to go before things really start improving in housing. And by the way... Sorry to leave you hanging, but due to our current file size limitations, I had to break this interview up into two sections. Be sure to listen to part two of my conversation with Barry Ritholtz on the Housing Helix podcast.